Richard Radio begins in three, two, one. If the God of the Bible really exists, I would go gladly to hell. And anybody happy to go to heaven to worship such a creature is morally bankrupt. It is because God's wrath is real that his mercy is relevant. Unless you have a real wrath, the biblical concepts of mercy and of grace are robbed of their meaning. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Let's go talk about the book we all read. You know they're dangerous. Take a look, it's in a book. So many books, so little time. This is Wretched Radio taking you back in time. Perhaps you've been asked the party question. If you could go back and spend time with one person, who would it be? For the believer, of course, it should be Jesus Christ. But I'm wondering if we understood the world into which Jesus was born, if we would be so quick to want to go back there. Perhaps you're one of those people who thinks, oh, if we could just go back to the first century church, I'm not so sure that's as good of an idea as it appears to be on the surface. When you consider what life was like in the first century, Jesus was born in the fullness of time. In other words, at the time that God had preordained, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, his prearranged plan to save people, send his son, crush the head of the serpent, his heel would be bruised, a people would be redeemed, God would be glorified. And this happened at just the perfect time. And that time includes not living very nicely Our Savior did not enjoy the amenities that you and I take for granted. You know, I'm a little thirsty. I'll just go to the fridge and get a chilled bottle of water. Not so in the first century. If you didn't bring it from the well or from the cistern, you didn't have any. And it typically wasn't chilled unless it was coming out of a cool, bubbling spring. Temperature control? You and I, how quick are we to whine about the Oh, it's so, so humid in here. Can we? What's the temperature at? 71? I'd like it at 69 and a half, please. Boom! It's 69 and a half. Not so for Jesus. The summers in Israel, seven months long, no rain, period. Nada. Not now. Not ever. Seven months. You spent most of your time outside trying to find shade. You would only sleep inside. And speaking of sleeping, that wasn't all that comfortable because typically you had to use your cloak, your one garment that you possessed, for your bed, for your pillow, for your blanket. Our Savior was not born at a cushy time. He was born in a rough and tumble time that did not have the amenities that heaven possesses. Nevertheless, he came. And if you and I can go back in time, we will appreciate more what our Savior has sacrificed for us. He didn't come at a time when there were cell phones, smartphones, internet, running water, computers, technology, airplanes, trains, automobiles, and everything in between. Let's go back in time to appreciate when our Savior lived, courtesy of a book titled The World Jesus Knew by Ann Punton. It is a big view of a lot of different aspects of life. 
in Israel in the first century. And as you hear these details of what life was like, I think you might have a new appreciation for Jesus. Let's start out with his clothing, shall we? Question, how many hangers do you have in your closet? Just go ahead and guess. It's, it's probably twice as many as you're going to guess. So you think you got 10, you've probably got 20. Nevertheless, we'll give you 10. There would be one, maybe, for some people. One hanger per, per Jewish person in first century Israel. Whether a person was rich or poor, town village or desert dweller, professional or working class, the clothes worn were similar with just a few distinguishing variations in style and quality. It was sometimes in the village, a different village would have like a different thing, maybe like an emblem or a coin, something to distinguish you from a different town. But otherwise, people pretty much wore the exact same thing. Fashions rarely change in the Middle East. And because of that, we've got a pretty good idea of what Jesus dressed like. By the way, it is only in the latter half of the 20th century that clothing has at all become westernized in the Middle East. Otherwise, it's been stable for thousands of years. The basic garment was a flowing ankle-length robe with long, loose sleeves tied with a girdle or belt. That detail alone is going to help you understand some biblical language like gird your loins. What? Does loin girding have to, it has to do with your clothing? Peter working in his clothes when he was fishing. What was he wearing? What did he strip off? What did he keep on? There was not much to the attire. It was one flowing ankle-length robe. The material was hand-woven from cotton for the poor and from silk for the wealthy. Who don't forget the wealthy, about 1% maximum, had any sort of wealth whatsoever. Everybody else was not just poor. They were patoxis poor. They were the kese. They were bankrupt. They had nothing, honey. They were dirt poor. The clothes, the cloth rather, was often used in its undyed natural state or it was bleached white. If colors were preferred, they used vegetable dyes to give the deep blues an indigo. Hmm. Seller of purple, anybody? Which are still seen today. Men and women both wore robes or only slightly differing cut and shape. That's fascinating, isn't it? If indeed men and women dressed pretty similarly, how did they follow the command that a man should look like a man and a woman should look like a woman? Perhaps... It had less to do with the clothing. It's not that it was entirely insignificant, but perhaps less to do with it and how a woman simply presented herself. Hair, gentleness, you could tell that's a woman, even though she's wearing pretty much the exact same thing a fellow is wearing. It was perhaps even more modest than what a male would wear. Otherwise, what made a woman look like a woman was that she looked like a woman, less so clothes, and that has some application for us today because there are some people who get pretty specific about what they think boys and girls should wear, and that a girl should never wear pants. Well, back in that day, both men and women wore robes. What do we do with that? We realize that the Bible gives leeway in different civilizations at different times. 
And as long as a boy's looking like a boy and a girl's looking like a girl, that's the standard. Back to first century Israel. Girdles or belts were fashioned from wool, silk, or leather. The purse referred to by Jesus was a pouch inside the belt, which safely held small coins and valuables. So this wasn't like some fancy schmancy Michael Kors purse. No, this was a pouch inside the belt. For active work, the robe is caught up in front and twisted into the belt to expose and free the legs for movement. The Bible calls this girding the loins. You are ready for action. The wide sleeves of the gown were shaped to a point which hung below the fingers. To free the arms for work, they were pulled up above the elbow and the tapered ends tied together in front of the chest. The joint sleeves were then thrown back over the head so that the knotted part lay across the back of the shoulders. Being so full and long, this was not uncomfortable, and it left the arms unhampered for whatever tasks needed to be performed. As with the loins, to, quote, bear one's arm means to be ready for action. Not take a weapon. (laughs) It might mean that, but it just means be ready. When the Lord bears his holy arm, it is a sign that he's about to act in Israel's behalf. Don't you love knowing about what was going on in the first century? The more you can get your first century understanding colored, the more the Bible comes alive, to be sure. All classes of people wore cloaks, but for the poor, they were essential items of clothing, whereas a rich man's cloak might be more decorative than practical. The best cloaks were woven from goat or camel hair, coarse but warm and waterproof. John the Baptist, he wore camel hair and a leather belt and ate locusts and wild honey, which may not have been exactly what we think it was. Doesn't mean that he looked like Tarzan, but he dressed and lived as a peasant. That's the point. Even though his father was a priest, he wore woven camel hair cloak which was a working man's leather girdle. What was he eating exactly? When you hear that John the Baptist ate locusts and honey, I suspect you, like I, think, well, he was eating bugs and honey, because that's what it says. Not so fast. We're going to take a look at first century food and meanings, because the more we understand exactly what was going on in the world in the first century, the better we're going to understand our Bible. This is why, if you've ever studied hermeneutics, you know that you've got to understand as much as you possibly can about what was going on in the world at that time to understand the text fully. References that people took for granted then, we've got to try to understand now, and we can do that If we go back in time, and we will do that, the world that Jesus knew, and Puntin is the author. What's up next? Locusts and honey. This is Wretched Radio. You're familiar with this sound. You're sitting in church. Your pastor is preaching. You have your John MacArthur study Bible open. The pastor is reading the scripture, and all of a sudden you hear... Everybody in church turning the page because they all have the same MacArthur Study Bible. Why? Because it is so helpful to be able to read study notes underneath the verses to really grasp what God's Word is trying to teach. 
How would you like to share the joy of putting a John MacArthur Study Bible into the hands of a believer in the Philippines? They typically make about $12 to $15 per, not hour, per day. It's a luxury item, and it would be such a blessing. $25 a Bible, four Bibles, $100, or perhaps you could send a Bible to a brother or sister in the Philippines every single month. Would you please consider doing that to bring joy to our brothers and sisters? Wretched.org slash Bible. Hey, thank you for listening to Wretched Radio today. We know you have infinite choices in what gets your time, and we don't take for granted that you've chosen Wretched Radio. And we also want to thank those of you who are monthly Wretched Gospel Partners. Without your support, we could not do all that we're able to do. From Wretched Radio and Wretched TV to other productions like Road Trip to Truth, Transformed, and Breaking Bread, not to mention the many resources available in the Wretched store, they're all possible only because of you and your ongoing support. If you're not already a monthly Wretched Gospel partner, would you prayerfully consider becoming one? Help us continue producing quality productions that reach millions with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And know that we take seriously our stewardship of the resources you provide. That's why we're audited yearly by the ECFA, so you know we're accountable to you. Get all the information you could ever need about becoming a monthly Wretched Gospel partner now by visiting wretched.org slash donate. Wretched. Amazing grace. Amazing gospel. Hey, isn't this groovy? Dozens of crisis pregnancy centers have been vandalized or set on fire because of the Roe v. Wade decision. A preborn center in Buffalo was firebombed. A preborn clinic in Gresham, Oregon, was hit with an incendiary device. A preborn clinic in Miami vandalized, and they're receiving bomb threats. In other words, the battle for life is becoming a battle for life, and yet the preborn centers continue to open. Support organizations like Preborn and like your local pregnancy clinic that are unwaveringly and without fear opening again today offering free loving Christ-centered alternatives to these young women. Be part of the solution. Please join the literal battle for life. Preborn.org slash wretched. Preborn.org slash wretched. Books of the Bible. First Corinthians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Paul addresses his concerns about divisions and immorality in the church. Then Paul answers questions from the Corinthians about marriage, food, worship, gifts, and the resurrection. When you want to understand God's high calling for the church, look to 1 Corinthians. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Care for some locusts and honey? This is Wretched Radio. That's right. That's a cricket doing its impersonation of a locust, which perhaps you and I think is precisely what John the Baptist consumed, because that's what it said. Locusts and honey. And so he, like Winnie the Pooh, would get a jar of that sweet stuff, and maybe he dipped the bugs into it, and that's how it would be palatable. Hold the phone, Henrietta. Maybe not so fast. When you and I spend time digging into the culture the customs, the clothing, the culinary delights of the first century, and any other alliterated word I can think of, you and I will better understand our Bibles. And Punton has written a book called The World Jesus Knew. It's about 20 years old now. I picked it up off of my shelf and went, hey, 
this is really good stuff. Especially when I learned that the word locust probably referred to something a little different than a grasshopper-like insect. Many commentators think that it was a common carob pod, a brown, flat, hard sort of pod, about seven inches long and one inch wide. The small seeds inside gave the name carrot to the weight measurement of gold and jewels. Did you know that? Why your wife's diamond ring is whatever carrot it is? It's because it's a measurement from a locust pod. Huh. It grows on a low tree and being wild and plentiful, the poor gathered it for food. The pod is very nutritious. People today who cannot take cocoa products sometimes substitute carob flour instead. And what about the honey? Honey? Maybe it wasn't what Winnie the Pooh loved. The only explicit biblical reference to bee honey is the story of Samson. The Hebrew word davash was more commonly used for any syrup or nectar extracted from fruit and especially from the date. Carobs, not to be confused with carrots, carobs and dates were most likely John's staple diet. The greatest prophet of all time never visited an old country buffet. Never. The old, you know what? Wait a second. No, I'm thinking Cracker Barrel. Are country buffets still open, or were they one of the pandemic victims that went out of business? I saw, uh, what's the big buffet chain? Oh, uh, man. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so, you know, the, the I know which one went out of business. The chain that went out of business was that steak place. And I, I've never been there, but apparently you can get a Sunday, like a never-ending Sunday with the fudge that's melted. And uh, it begins with a C, Corral, the Golden Corral. Golden Corral. They, no, they're back in business. No. I saw one open the other day. Huh. Did I they did. spell it the same way? Because you might yeah. have a tr- somebody kind of doing a quick trademark sort yeah. of deal. You, you, In fact, right. oh, speaking of just a word changing a trademark, because that's that's what people will do. I saw something that was that was advertised and normally it was like the name of the person. Well, they put an and between the person's first name and last name, like a designer name. And therefore, they can actually use it. To trick people into thinking they're getting a designer when it's really a knockoff. Oh, the rascals. Furthermore, in this book that I was reading called The World Jesus Knew, Yeshua. Perhaps sometimes you've heard Jewish people call Jesus Yeshu as opposed to Yeshua or Joshua. It's because of a letter that's inserted that makes it mean something besides Messiah or promised one or deliverer or chosen one. It basically means like a miscreant, if I recall correct. It wasn't, it's not a compliment. And it's a pejorative, and it is changing the name of Jesus by removing the ua and just making it a makes it a nasty name. And that's why if you hear Jewish people using it, for the most part, they probably don't understand why. They were just told that's the name. But historically, It was because it was a pejorative name that the Jewish people used throughout the centuries to describe Jesus. John the Baptist ate not nice things. That's a great sentence, Friel, right? That's a good... John the Baptist ate not nice things is what he... it It wasn't fine dining. And neither was Jesus. A lot of bread. A lot of natural stuff. Some sweetener, uh, just 
He did not enjoy delicacies, but we are talking mostly about clothing. Though not worn in hot weather, cloaks were used as a bed covering, even in summer in desert areas and on higher ground where the nights are cold. Many poor people, therefore, needed them all year round. This is why the Torah forbids keeping a pledged cloak overnight. Otherwise, what would a poor person have to sleep in? That was one of the laws of the Torah. And now you know why. Because a cloak meant everything to a person. What about what people in the first century, including our Savior, wore on their heads and feet? Got to tell you, you can't see the picture that I can see. These sandals, they don't look comfortable. I don't know about you, but I don't like one of my little piggies being lassoed and separated from the others. And that's exactly what this sandal looked like. It was just a flat sandal, piece of leather. And then it would have a strap right, right about your ankle. And then from the strap, keep this in mind, from the strap, there would be a leather string, if you will, a leather cord that would go to a lasso that would go around your big toe. That will be important in just a moment. From the book, The World Jesus Knew, most people had a head covering as a protection from the strong sun. Villagers and townsmen favored turbans. Nomadic desert dwellers used a flowing scarf held in place with a cord. They pulled it entirely across the face in a sandstorm. I don't know what image comes to mind for you if you think about your savior visually. Think somebody in the Middle East, skin color to boot, height probably a little shorter, beard, dressed in a robe with a tunic, sandals like you just heard described, perhaps a scarf. That's Jesus. That's what he looked like. I have to confess to you, I do find it fascinating that, that he was not dressed in a way that is attractive to most Westerners. I also find it fascinating that his skin color wasn't black, wasn't white. It was brown. How perfect for all of us. <laughs> that nobody could really go, yeah, he looks exactly like me. No, he looked exactly like what is being described in the world Jesus knew. Woman, women wore a close-fitting cap, which they covered with a veil. This was not a short, gauzy affair, but a sturdy piece of material, six feet square, doubled into a triangle and thrown over the head not the face. It hung across the shoulders and down the back. Obviously, it was removed for working, but it also made for a useful bag. Boaz asked Ruth to bring her veil and put six measures of barley in it for her to take home to the mother-in-law. That's about 15 liters of grain. Why? Because that's what a veil would do. Everyone dressed more or less alike. According to social standing, each village had some distinguishing feature. Country and poor folk often went barefoot. Townspeople might wear leather shoes, but in a hot climate, sandals were most comfortable. Think foot washing. It's possible that the disciples didn't have sandals. It's possible that there were times when Jesus didn't have sandals. And you walk through a town with animals as the transportation system? Yeah, that's what our Savior lived for and through.
Country and poor folk often went barefoot. The long strap attached to one end of a leather sole was wound around the big toe, the foot and ankle, and secured to the sole again. And then the, 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 the strap would go down and lasso your toe. What does that have to do with the Bible? The angel who freed Peter from prison told him to bind on his sandals, which is a better translation than put on your sandal, because that's how the strap functioned. If I were translating the Bible, I would no doubt go with bind on. And then people would argue and go, well, but but people don't know what that means. So you've got to contemporize it. I say, we learn what it meant so that we can appreciate it. That's our job as expositors. Everywhere the ground was stony and rough. Even today, if you walk on a dirt track during summer, you'll stir up a choking cloud of dust. On the same path in winter, you squelch in ankle-deep mud. The first priority when you get home is to wash your feet and sandals or rinse your wellies, your boots. Foot washing in Bible times was part of cleanliness and comfort. Only in this context do we see how deliberately and deeply Simon the Pharisee insulted Jesus by failing to wash his feet when he invited him into his house as a guest. That is just the tip of the less than advanced civilization into which Jesus Christ was born. Lived, no grumbling, no murmuring. And then the very people that he came to save killed him that they might live. What is not to love about a savior like that? This is Wretched Radio. This is Wretched Radio, and I'm Jimmy Hicks. So first, we go to the capital of confusion, that would be California, where last week Governor Gavin Newsom signed the Freedom to Walk Act into law. So this new law decriminalizes jaywalking. Why? Well, because, and this is the real reason, written in a press release by the San Francisco lawmaker that introduced the bill, quote, jaywalking tickets are disproportionately given to people of color and lower income individuals. So the answer here is just to eliminate a law that was originally designed to keep people safe because too many people of color are breaking the law and getting tickets. That's what you just heard, and certainly it isn't the only example of Tangled Up Truth today. Google, last week, removed the Covenant Eyes and Accountable to You apps from the Google Play Store because, and get ready for this, the software that was designed to help people break a porn addiction actually works the way it's supposed to work. And so Google decided to remove them. Talk about Twisted Up Truth, breaking a porn addiction is considered evil now. Okay, so you've heard us talk about this on Wretched before. You know how the age of adolescence has increased to like 30 years old these days? McDonald's is making sure to capitalize and profit from this unfortunate trend. They are releasing adult Happy Meals. Same meal, just larger portion sizes. Okay, so maybe it's just me, but doesn't it defeat the purpose to call them adult Happy Meals? Because you know, these 30-somethings don't think they're adults yet. What about the almost grown meal? And now more Twisted Up Truth. This from one of the nation's largest accusers of racism, Nancy Pelosi, who over the years has asserted that Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, Ron DeSantis, and a host of others have done or said racist things. 
And then we come to last week's pot and kettle moment for Miss Pelosi. We have a shortage of workers in our country. And you see even in Florida, some of the farmers and the growers saying, why are you shipping these immigrants uh, up north? We need them to pick the crops down here. Now, you know, if a Republican congressman said that, how do you think Nancy Pelosi would react? And speaking of racism in the government, Nancy isn't the only one. And look, I'm not throwing around accusations here. I'm just pointing out things that have been said recently, like this, Jim, from our country's vice president. And so we have to address this in a way that is about giving resources based on equity, understanding that we we fight for equality, but we also need to fight for equity, understanding not everyone starts out at the same place. Okay, so let me translate into common sense what you just heard. The vice president of the United States of America said, regardless of anything else, hurricane relief funds were going to be distributed based on equity. Is it 2024 yet? More Regid Radio is straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Mexican. Faith is not a force we harness or a feeling we get. True biblical faith consists of three things. Knowledge of the truth, agreement with the truth, and a trust in the true God. There is no power in faith itself. The power is in the one we put our faith in. Are you trusting in Christ or in something that cannot deliver? This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. What can we learn from silence? This is Wretched Radio. Oh, I know. It's a deconstructionist ruse to analyze a piece of literature or a speech, to listen to what was not said or written, to discern what the author actually intended. That's a bunch of gobbledygook. And yet, I would like to suggest to you, we might be able to learn a lesson or two from the silence of Jesus. Remember, anytime you argue from silence and an argument can be made, you're in, you're, you're in risky territory. Because just because it wasn't spoken about doesn't mean it's not dealt with. And yet, what we see is Jesus not talking about a lot of stuff. He had to have been involved in dinner conversations that were similar to yours and mine. It's fascinating to consider. All right, what do we talk about when you get together with folks, believer or unbeliever, what do you talk about? Politics? Do you think that maybe growing up the family was consumed with politics? Do you think when he was with his disciples there was a lot of conversation about politics? Yeah. How much did Jesus speak about politics? Not much. Now, please note that doesn't mean the Bible doesn't speak on it, and that might be our lesson here, that Jesus was silent on it because it gets handled elsewhere. Maybe another lesson was, um, I'm not going to get the Bible stuck in the first century with dealing with these issues because I want you to understand the principles of Scripture so that you can apply it in your context. Maybe that is a lesson. Or maybe the lesson from silence, especially regarding politics, is he didn't esteem it as that consuming of an issue. Is it possible? No doubt. In the marketplace, he did commerce. He was a worker before he was a rabbi. And Jesus undoubtedly was introduced to different political theories and ideologies and views on this regime and that emperor But he didn't say much at all, did he? Except to render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. And he stayed out of the fray. 
What else do we talk about? Sports. There were sports in the first century. You had the Olympic Games. I think the timing is right. And what makes the you know, what makes the the Olympic Games so unique back then is that people actually watched it, as opposed to the Tokyo Games with nobody in the stands. Why doesn't Jesus talk about sports? Maybe it's because it just wasn't all that big of a deal to him, and specifically to his ministry. What else did Jesus talk about that we don't see spoken about a lot in the Bible? And the answer to that is a lot. Let me return you to The World Jesus Knew, a book by Ann Punton. thought this might be a helpful reminder to us about the life and the context that our Savior lived in, because there just might be some lessons that we can learn. Here's the a look at the daily life of the society in which Jesus lived. Nomads and desert folks were tent dwellers, but most people lived in simple one-roomed houses. The family animals slept at one end while the humans lived on a raised portion of the other. People did not need much furniture. When they were inside, they sat cross-legged on the floor on woven rugs. In a peasant's house, the floor was of earth, perhaps covered with a rush carpet. Only the wealthy had flags and tiles. How much does Jesus talk about this and the disparity between the rich and the poor? Some, some to be certain. Does he advocate for social justice? Uh, no, the uh, Bible is silent on social justice. In a hot country, no one stays indoors much. Many domestic duties are performed outside. There is, uh, this is so even when the weather is cooler in winter. Any storms last for a few days at a time, and the sun always shines in between. Being higher in the sky at that latitude, the sun is quite warm. Even in winter, in summer, people probably did almost everything outside and only slept indoors, together, on thin sleeping mats, which they rolled up during the day. And that still happens a lot in the Middle East. And that's why we can understand when Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. <laughs> we can also appreciate why a certain householder grumbled about getting up for a late caller because my children are in bed with me. Because that's the way that they slept. Isn't it nice to know the context of Jesus' life so that you can understand the Bible better? Stairs up an outside wall led to the flat roofs where a busy rooftop culture existed and still does. The command to build a parapet around the roof makes a lot of sense. Furthermore, life in the first century, they, they, they encountered one another constantly. Of course, there were people living in a place. Greetings were and still can be both flowery, flowery and prolonged. Huh. So first century Israel was a lot like the South. Prolonged greetings and adieus. Wow. As our farewells and other polite niceties of social intercourse. In the leisurely society of Jesus' day, time mattered even less than it does in the present Middle East. <laughs> when people met friends or made new ones, they dropped other affairs and sat socializing for many hours. Isn't that fascinating? That was the culture. And why we see very, very clearly in Proverbs and I believe in First Thessalonians that you don't work, you don't eat. Don't be a dawdler, you work. And yet, 
Jesus doesn't rail against this practice. Was it cultural? Sure it was, but maybe just maybe our idea about the intensity of work, the duration of work, the clock in which we work, as opposed to the value of human interactions and appropriate, not getting carried away and being unproductive, socializing is an important aspect that maybe, maybe we've sacrificed to a degree. After all, I don't hear Jesus condemning talking in the streets. When Jesus sent 70 disciples out on a mission, he told them, salute no one on the road. Huh? Does that mean they were to ignore people? That's not at all what he meant. They were not to waste time in the unprofitable chit-chat of the prolonged social occasion. Their task was too urgent. In other words, there's a time for it and there's a time not for it. And we've got to discern that. My only encouragement to think about would just be if you happen to be like, I don't know, somebody I know personally, as I'm thinking about myself, you like to work. Um, are you sure your balance is correct? We don't want to be time wasters, but we don't want to diminish human relationships either, do we? Inns and travelers. Jesus and his disciples most often slept in the open, but at times, they would have happily taken shelter. On the main highways and in large villages, inns were plentiful, and they were often mentioned in the Bible. Different from a modern hotel, needless to say, they consisted of square building, a square of buildings, rather, set around a roomy courtyard. The lower story was just a series of open alcoves where travels, travelers stabled their animals for the night. Stairs led to an upper story and a walkway which would went around and overlooked the court on all four sides. The walkway gave access to more open recesses which provided sleeping quarters for the guests. In the center of the courtyard was a well and troughs for watering the livestock. Are you thinking Christmas yet? In the stable rooms were, manage, were mangers for fodder. Baggage was stored in the open courtyard and in the case of a rich man or a merchant, there would be a servant on guard to protect it. No privacy. Strangers bedded down on their own sleeping mats together. So when Jesus was born, um, where were they? It, it, is, it is possible that they were in the central area where the animals were, which is why they used the manger and the hay. And there was no room for them in the inn. In other words, they didn't have a room. They were put into the courtyard with the animals. Could a savior be born in more lowly circumstances than that? It's pretty hard to imagine, doesn't it? From the book by Ann Punton, Mary and Joseph found no room in the Bethlehem Inn and family took shelter in what we fondly assume to be a stable. Luke records the incident, says Mary laid her baby in a manger. We deduce the manger was in a stable. Does this mean the upper story rooms of the inn were full? And they slept with the animals below? Quite likely. Huh. Isn't that interesting to note? The social and administrative center of any sizable community was the city gate. That's why when you read the Old Testament and having a reputation and being able to meet at the city gate, that was a big deal. Shopkeepers displayed their goods in the open while craftsmen worked in the street in front of their shops. They bartered. There was a lot of haggling going on. Each street devoted to one kind of business. For instance, Jeremiah visited a potter. He went to the street of the potters. While Jeremiah was in prison, the king gave him a loaf of bread, which came from the street of the bakers. 
Was there a street of the carpenters in the Nazareth Bazaar where Joseph and his family live behind the shop? That was pretty customary. Is it possible? Yes. Do I want to build a new denomination out of that? No. No, I don't. Instead, I want to study the culture in which Jesus lives so I can understand what the Bible says better. And maybe on occasion, by taking a look at what he emphasized and what he did not, might be instructive for us as we consider what our priorities are. This is Wretched Radio. 200. That's right. 200 Tomorrow Clubs are now up and running again in Ukraine. That means kids are hearing the gospel. They're getting saved. Their parents are getting saved. The church is getting strengthened. Not only are the Tomorrow Clubs busy preaching the gospel, they're also very busy helping people. This is our buddy Max in Ukraine. We have created the Ukraine Support Fund. Thanks to our partners, Tomorrow Clubs began immediate assistance to the network of the local church it became a safe place for thousands of refugees fleeing their devastated homes. Providing food, providing clothing, potable water, a safe place, communication. Would you please consider becoming a ministry partner of the amazing ministry called Tomorrow Clubs? You can learn how you could participate in the spreading of the gospel in Eastern Europe at tomorrowclubs.org wretched. You know, there are a ton of things people partner in. Some have business partners, some have workout partners. We all need accountability partners. Then you have partners in crime, not something I recommend, or marriage partners, something I do recommend. And then, of course, we can't forget about the wretched gospel partner. Our gospel partners, that would be many of you, provide us with the ability to do what we're able to do. You faithfully helped us reach millions of people all over the world with resources like Wretched Radio and TV, Road Trip to Truth, Transformed, Breaking Bread, Wretched Worldview, The Drive-By Series. I can keep going, but we'd be here far too long. Plus, I think you already get the point. Without you, there is no wretched. So we humbly thank you for your support. If you're not already an ongoing Wretched Gospel partner, would you prayerfully consider becoming one? Just hit up wretched.org donate to find answers to many other questions you may have. That's wretched.org donate. How's inflation been treating you if costs for health insurance are skyrocketing in your home? Would you please visit MediShare.com slash wretched affordable biblical health sharing Christians paying for other Christians medical bills, which means you don't have to worry where the money is going for bad stuff. Second of all, you can save on average $500 per month. And finally, MediShare, it's the gold standard for healthcare sharing for more than 25 years. It works and the members, including myself and Mrs. Friel, love it, which is why their customer satisfaction rate is double traditional health insurance. If inflation has got you down, call up the people at MediShare, 844-34-BIBLE or MediShare.com slash wretched. Titles of Christ In the Bible, Jesus is given many titles that teach us about who he is and what he has done. Jesus is called the Bread of Life, Just as God gave life to his people in the desert by providing manna, 
So Jesus gives life to his people through his body broken on the cross, which we remember in the breaking of the bread in communion. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Sorry, can't help myself. Besides, my brain is a sieve. This is Wretched Radio. This book that I hold in my never-before-nicotine-stained fingers, I read 20 years ago, give or take. Picked it up about a month ago, reread it, at least my underlined stuff, and for some reason, the chapter or two that I skipped over. That was a month ago. I then went about the business of marking it up so that I could potentially share with you how Jesus lived in the first century. In other words, I've interacted with this book a reasonable amount of time, and yet, even as we speak, or at least I speak, I'm rereading what I highlighted for you that I thought might be of interest to you. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's a, I didn't know that. Yes, I did. I read it. And yet our brains, zoinks, scoob, how much information we consume and yet how much of it sticks around. Woo. So please forgive me for forgetting. And please forgive me for sharing this with you. But I just find this too fascinating to not have a better understanding of what life was like when Jesus Christ lived. If a porter, there were people who were carriers. That's what they did for a living. There was a whole lot of schlepping going on. Don't know that they had dollies back then. Certainly not automobiles, but even a beast of burden could be a bit of a luxury item. You had to carry stuff. And there were porters. If a porter is tired, he asks a passerby to stoop under his load and take the weight for a moment rather than put his burden down. That image underlies the words, bear each other's burdens. Carry each other's loads. Be a porter for one another. The Greek term is baros. It means a very heavy load. Each person is then told to carry his own burden. And here the Greek word is ortion, something light, which is carried by hand. So we need to help other people carry their heavy burdens, and they help us carry our light burdens, but we shore up under our own burdens. We carry them ourselves but we get help from others when we need it. It's all imagery of a porter in the first century, the era in which Jesus Christ lived. The Romans took control of the region, which they called Palestine, the century before Jesus. Please note, you're not going to find Palestine on a map. It's not an officially recognized nation, never has been. I doubt it ever will be. Hope not. Israel. Much better way to describe the territory that is called, well, you know, Israel. Because Palestine is a pejorative term for Philistine. Tax collectors were clever, educated, and rich men. Materially, Matthew and Zacchaeus gave up a lot to follow Jesus. Did you ever ponder that about Matthew? The tax collector? Probably a sharp character. Followed a rabbi around the country. Followed a man to death. Went and preached his gospel. He was educated, but he saw him with his own eyes. Furthermore, well, he did surrender all. Not some. He surrendered a lot. It was a huge sacrifice. That should be an encouragement to us that a man who saw Jesus Christ was willing to give up fame and fortune, a higher lifestyle because he knew it to be true. That should encourage us. There were three attitudes to Rome at that day. The zealots were extreme nationalists who advocated force against the occupying power. One of the disciples was a zealot. At the other end of the spectrum, there were the Sadducees, 
And do you, do you know why they're called that? They don't they don't believe in heaven. Go ahead, Jimmy. Just I know you're itching. What? They were sad, you see. Boomch. Thank you. They were all they were the wealthy aristocracy, an upper class priest who did all they could to keep in with Rome and avoid confrontation. In the center were the ordinary people, the lower class priests and the Pharisees. Although they hated their foreign overlords, the most important thing that they could do was practice their religion in their own way. So as long as they leave us alone, whatever, they just wanted peace. Those would be the sad UCs. Not everybody agreed with that. The zealots, they just wanted to go to war. The Romans kept charge of the high priest robes as a guarantee of national cooperation. Did you know that? And maybe that just that that has some sense to it. Why the what the robe? The robe was a very symbolic piece of clothing because, well, frankly, it was your only clothing and you were known as your cloak. And this is why when you see in biblical covenant, the exchanging of a garment, the exchanging of robes, David and Jonathan style, that you were exchanging identities. If, if Jimmy were walking in front of me a hundred yards and I could see his, the back of just the back of him and I saw the robe, I'd go, oh, that's Jimmy. That you were identified with your robe. And it was a really crucial piece of equipment because you needed it for a blanket. You needed it for a pillow. You needed it to cover you. You needed to perhaps protect something. And so it is in biblical covenant. We exchange a garment. We exchange something that says, my identity is now your identity. Your identity is mine. Anybody think it on the marriage vows? This is why two become one. And the new identity, the new family, is this two-person unit together. And that is why you see robes exchanged in a biblical covenant, because robes were valuable and they were an identifier. I did not know that the Romans held on to the robe of the high priest. Did you know that? As a guarantee of national cooperation? Ordinary folks concentrated on daily survival in a hard world. Their great comfort was their hope in the imminent arrival of a leader who would free them from foreign subjugation and restore their national sovereignty. Into this climate of spiritual optimism came Jesus Christ. That's the culture that he sprang out of and dealt with. And you and I would do well to understand this culture so that we can understand his word better. For instance, a question that I think is well worth asking is, um, how did Jesus get educated? How did he become a rabbi? How is it that this Jesus spoke in ways that caused people to go, uh, what's up with that? That is answered in this book, The World That Jesus Knew. Mary and Joseph, they were devout Jewish people. And that means even in the first century, there was a decent education for a kid. And specifically in this instance, or Jesus Christ, because his parents were so, I'll say, religious. The religious leaders in Judea tended to feel, as the Gospels show, Jesus and his disciples were ignorant and uneducated. They came from Galilee. They've never studied. They, they, they never studied the Torah under one of the teachers of the law, rooted in certain prejudice which regarded Judea, centered upon Jerusalem as superior to Galilee. Could Jesus possibly have received a proper religious education in Galilee? And the answer to that question is 
Yes. Yes, he did. Galilee was so diversely populated that it was also known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Agriculture, trades flourished, lots of commerce. Important trade routes intersected in this area. And Jesus Christ, being a carpenter, he interacted with a lot of people, foreigners. He wasn't a rube. He, he knew people, met all kinds of people. Galilean Jews were more exposed to other cultures and values. It was also a center for the Zealots. The town of Nazareth what did not have a good name, in part because it was on a major trade route going inland, closely in touch with the Gentile world. Interesting. Jesus was no backwoods boy ignorant of the ways of the world. But hold on, what about his education? He must have watched his mother prepare for the Sabbath. He must have seen that going on in the home, and that means they were talking about God in the home. Perhaps from his father, Jesus learned the reason for mezuzah on the doorpost and copied him in touching it as he went in and out of his home. You know the small piece of wood that Jewish people kiss or touch? Jewish fathers also taught their sons how to put on the phylacteries or prayer boxes, the box on the head with the commandments in it. Born on the head or the left arm. That was, that, was the, that was the home of Jesus. According to rabbinic tradition, a Jewish father was bound to teach his son as soon as the boy spoke. The duty took precedence even over eating a meal. The child learned short psalms and scripture verses, wise sayings of the sages and the simple prayers that, that are regularly taken from the Bible. Great store was laid on accuracy of memory because the ancient world had no printed material, only that which was written by hand. Rabbinic traditions tell us it was deemed unlawful for a family to live in a space where there was no school. Every community with 25 suitable boys was bound to appoint a schoolmaster. For more than 40, he had to have an assistant. About 50 boys warranted a second master. The school was attached to the synagogue and the teacher was a synagogue official, but classes might be held outdoors. The pupils sat on the ground in a semicircle around the teacher. In other words, Jesus had an education, perhaps had a bar mitzvah, most likely. Went to the synagogue where he studied and learned and heard and, 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 and studied Aramaic and Hebrew, bilingual. In other words, despite what people from Jerusalem said about Jesus as they looked down his nose from a point of superiority on the Temple Mount, Jesus was educated. Jesus was, in the right way, worldly. Jesus was not uneducated. The book, The World Jesus Knew and Punting, helping us to love our Savior more. Until tomorrow, go serve your king. <laughs>